Last time on the When We Were Young podcast, we shared our own histories with the X-Files when we were young. So listen to episode 78 for part one of this conversation. Here in our second installment, we talk about some of the most impactful and fan-favorite episodes from the course of the show, as well as the X-Files movie, Fight the Future. And we discuss the cultural impact of the X-Files and its online fan community. I gave my co-host a list of episodes to watch so we could give an impression of the whole range of the X-Files. Among the list of episodes I gave are Season 1, Episode 17, entitled EBE, and Season 2, Episode 25, entitled Anasazi. And these are two of the most important alien conspiracy mythological arc episodes of X-Files. The first one, EBE, featured Deep Throat, who was Mulder's helper and enabler, kind of within the conspiracy, the powerful men who were really pulling the levers behind the scenes. And in the first season of the show, Deep Throat is this kind of constant figure who's helping Mulder get closer and closer to the truth. And Deep Throat actually gets killed near the end of the season. But in this particular episode, we learn that Deep Throat is one of the only humans who has ever seen an alien, and it was because he was tasked with killing the alien. And so, as Mulder gets closer and closer to the truth, the actual ability to get any real evidence gets taken away from him. Yeah, this was the first episode I watched, you know, for this show. So this this was kind of the one that, like, crystallized sort of my early reaction to this, which was that the show's a little goofy, you know? It felt a little goofy, I think, in these, like, season one episodes. Like, it was just so... Like, they were going kind of overboard on, like, the SAT words. Like, so, <laughs> there's just so much... Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally Like, agree. big words that felt like they they just didn't quite feel natural like you could probably play a drinking game to every time the word plausible is used um throughout the show oh my god <laughs> i mean this was also the episode that definitely referenced all the president's men mm-hmm. directly with like the character of deep throat i don't know if it's supposed to be exactly the same deep throat or just like a guy who's also using that code name but either way like it's obviously like taking on that role and so i i enjoyed the 70s paranoia like that aspect of it which when i first watched the show i hadn't seen you know, those movies enough to know that that was a reference, but I appreciated that. You have to tell me what it was. A military UFO? Mr. Mulder, why are those like yourself who believe in the existence of extraterrestrial life on this earth not dissuaded by all the evidence to the contrary? Because... All the evidence to the contrary is not entirely dissuasive. Precisely. They're here, aren't they? Mr. Mulder, they've been here for a long, long time. Mm 
but yeah, I mean, this, these episodes are very plot heavy. Like the, I guess this is an overall note about the mythology episodes is just that like so much of the dialogue and what we're spending time on is specifically like this conspiracy, that conspiracy, like just setting up like the next scenes and everything that it just, it, they're not that enjoyable to watch, you know, kind of out of context. I felt like there's a few moments that are enjoyable, but I really would have liked more, you know, kind of character moments from episodes like this and kind of, you know, maybe even a subplot or two, which like X-Files does not really do. Like it's pretty much a story, like the entire way through an episode. There's rarely like anything else going on. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it was not my favorite of the episodes that we watched. You know what? It's interesting you said that. I never really realized it, but you're right. It's pretty much a plot all the way. And if the a plot doesn't grab you, there's nothing for you in that episode. And I think these few first episodes, I just didn't really get anything out of. I'm not a LA, you know, a law and order person. I'm not a CSI person. I just don't watch procedurals and the the plot heaviness of it without anything breaking that up. Again, I can't say it's like bad. It's just like so not for me that these mythology episodes were really hard for me to get through versus more of the monster of the week ones. Yeah. I, and honestly, I have to say, I totally get it from from both of your points of view here especially divorced from any kind of really deep well of understanding of everything that happens in all the other episodes you're completely correct that basically all that's going on in most of these here is plot 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 see i wrote five plots when i said it ah i have uh, that literally in my notes is plot 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 i'm sorry i'm i'm undercounting the plotness here the irony is that the mythology episodes are some of the ones where the most character development of Mulder and scully is happening where the most personal moments that reveal who they are are happening but the folly i guess of trying to make any short list of episodes that represent all of that is that you can't really comprehensively cover all of those or any of them if all you're watching is you know one part of a three-part episode arc and that's not even taking into account that there are storylines and plot and character developments that take place over a whole season or even over multiple entire seasons of the show before you actually understand what's going on and it's clear again in retrospect and especially researching the degree to which they were totally winging it to the point that that was always kind of an open joke for me and with the folks I'd have X-Files nights with. You know, it was always like hilarious the degree to which Chris Carter was clearly just flying by the seat of his pants. But (laughs) again, I think back to kind of legendary episodes like EBE or the episode on Asazi in the start of season three, where what's happening both in the plot and to the characters is simultaneously like so esoteric and out there and also plot-based, that I totally get how it would lose most people if they're just watching a few episodes right now. Yeah, I watched Anasazi, but it is also the first of a three-parter, I believe, that spanned the end of season (laughs) two and the beginning of season three. And so, like, when it ended, I was like, okay, well, I'll watch, you know, the next one. 
And then that was also a cliffhanger with a to be continued. So I was like, I guess I'm watching the next one too. <laughs> so I ended up watching like this entire arc. Obviously it keeps going, but for one, I mean, there's a whole lot of episodes that are taken from uh, Native American uh, <laughs> culture named after Native American culture as well. And other cultures, there's a lot of cultural appropriation, which feels very 90s and like the like other cultures are spooky. <laughs> you know, like a lot of the monsters end up just being like a Native American tradition or, you know, something I like that. I don't know. I would, I would challenge that in the sense that I think in most cases, it's more cultural references than it is appropriation. Part of what the show did procedurally was kind of similar to, you know, a CSI show or a Law and Order show. They, like, do things that are ripped from the headlines. But also a lot of the well of inspiration for the episodes was literally referencing the ghost stories and monster stories of other cultures and other countries. Not necessarily appropriating them in the way that we use that word appropriation now. Yeah, I mean, I think I would halfway agree. Like, I I liked the way that they use sort of the Native American culture, especially in the blessing way, which was the next episode. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. And they have like a Native American character who's kind of, you know, a big part of the show. Or I mean, a big part of these episodes. big part of the whole show like his his name is albert hostein and he's the the kind of world war ii code talker and he plays a very pivotal role in the kind of whole show but especially in like the season three episodes and when Mulder gets abducted all that stuff so i might be alone on this but um this was <laughs> the episode that made me ask is david Duchovny a good actor which one which episode <laughs> Oh, she's on the defense. <laughs> you have invoked the Dukovnite. Anasazi, um, because this is the one where he um, freaks out and he punches his boss. Are you okay? Yeah, I just haven't been sleeping. Sir? Jim Muller, I need to speak with you. About? I'm in the office. Why? Is this another jerk-off assignment where I end up doing the government's dirty work? You know, it's about a rumor that you may be in receipt of some sensitive files. I don't know anything about that. Agent Muller, listen. I'm talking to you. Can we finish, Agent Muller? We're done. We're done. In this episode, the water supply in Mulder's building is tainted. So Mulder is suffering from hallucinations and paranoid delusions. I'm not that into David Duchovny uh, throughout the whole series, to be honest. Fine. More for me. That's fine. That's fine. Honestly, Becky and I can go. Sorry. Go go ahead. Finish your thought. (laughs) All right. I've been expelled from the podcast. No, I, I, Chris, 
Chris, I can't say I disagree with you. <gasps> I I Whoa. don't know if he's a good actor, but I but I the covenant the covenant betrayals. <laughs> I will tell you this: not to jump to another episode, but I'm going to do that anyway. There's an episode that Seth didn't recommend, but it was one of the only ones I remembered because it has a very good performance from David Duchovny, and it was like he was very critically acclaimed at the time for this episode called Small Potatoes, where there's like a shapeshifter who like can become other people, and he becomes. Mulder, so David Duchovny's acting like a different person in it. And I, when I was rewatching it, I was like, he's a good actor in this. Like, he's doing a really good job because I think generally he's very monotone and very like sarcastic and lethargic. Lethargic. I, I yeah. Wrote down. Yeah. I think, I think that's his thing. I don't know if you guys watch Small Potatoes, but in that episode, he does liven it up a bit. Like, he he just does a good job. It's not like he's, like, jumping off the roof and doing a soft shoe or anything. But <laughs> but it was a, a standout, I think, because he had to do something different than what he does with Mulder, which isn't much. So I don't know how talented he is as an actor. That's not why I like him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll just say, like, I don't find it anything really attractive about him so i don't get that but that's fine that's a that's a subjective disagree i know i know there's a there's a whole song like look look i can't explain it it just is what it is and he's my type so i don't know what (laughs) physics is physics you guys (laughs) (laughs) uh yeah i just i don't see it at all but like i but like he just he to me it like it i don't want to say it like ruins the show but it like it I'm just not into his character. He seems so kind of like sleepy and just like, you know, like, ugh, like mediocre. And, and so like his, like he's the passionate character supposedly, but I feel like he doesn't really play passion very well. And so I don't know to me, like I love Gillian Anderson and I love Scully as a character and I'm so into her and I find her so compelling, but I, I just don't think she's evenly matched with him. And this was the episode that just kind of like put that into my mind. So then that takes us into a couple of the Monster of the Week episodes, which really the next two on our list are the most kind of notorious and most fan favorite beloved episodes. The first one is from season three. It's called Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. That was aired October 13th, 1995, co-starring Peter Boyle, for which he won the Primetime Emmy for his guest starring role. And the second episode, named Home from the fourth season, aired uh, October 11th, 1996. And that has the distinction of being the only episode of The X-Files to carry a TVMA rating upon broadcast. You first to receive a viewer discretion warning for graphic content, and for a long time it was banned from ever re-airing on Fox. Man. What did you think about these episodes? Starting with Clyde Bruckman, like, I actually thought it was a pretty interesting standalone episode. Like, Peter Boyle was great. I was interested in the story from start to finish. So for me, that was a success. (laughs) I guess <laughs> I know that doesn't that sounds like a backwards compliment, but I found it intriguing. I, I and I thought that was mostly because of Peter Boyle's performance. Can you see your own end? I see our end. We end up in bed together. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I, I don't, don't mean to offend you or scare you, but uh, not here, not this bed. I just mean I I see us quite clearly in bed together 
you're holding my hand uh, very tenderly and then you're looking at me with such compassion and I feel tears are streaming down my face I feel so grateful it's just a very special moment neither of us will ever forget Mr. Bruckman, there are hits and there are misses. And then there are misses. I just call him as I see him. Yeah, I liked this episode. I mean, it is the one that either comes up as number one on fan favorite episodes or very close to that. So I was expecting a lot and also knowing like it won the Emmy for him and just has this reputation. I liked it. I felt like, and I kind of feel like this about a lot of these episodes, it's just like they bite off a lot. And in 45 minutes, it's hard to just kind of make the use of like this entire, you know, world that they've created for this episode episode and there's a lot of really interesting stuff here like I almost just would have liked like a full movie about this like a lot of these do feel like their own movies and Mulder and Scully are almost kind of incidental to these episodes where it's really like the star of this episode is clearly Peter Boyle and that's you know what you're kind of drawn to and there are some good Mulder and Scully moments here but overall I think like you could take Mulder and Scully out of this episode and it wouldn't change it the story is about this Peter Boyle character And so I was interested in that, but I was also a little bit like, why is this an episode of The X-Files and not just a movie? I do want to add that this episode in particular is like number one on a bunch of lists, like Chris said. And so I think I was expecting something and I definitely like liked it. But if this is like the number one show, like episode of a show that people say is the best and I'm just thought it was good. <laughs> like, I was just like, oh boy, this is not <laughs> promising for how I'm going to feel about this entire series. Well, yeah. I mean, that brings up, I guess, something that is going to be true of a couple more that we'll talk about too, which is that like all the fan favorite episodes have basically Mulder and Scully are incidental. They're basically just movies that happen to have Mulder and Scully in them. So I think it's weird that this show is, you know, so beloved and these characters are so iconic. And yet, like, the best episodes tend to be the ones that aren't really even about them. Again, I think here what we're hitting is the limitation of seeing a show like this as being just about individual episodes. When so many of the storylines are only built up and only have any kind of weight because they're taking place over a period of time over a couple episodes put together or over a whole season or over multiple seasons. I totally agree with both of you. A lot of these kind of quote-unquote fan favorite episodes in Clyde Bruckman is usually like the number one on any of those lists. They're really fun and I really enjoy them because they're like a send-up of the X-Files format. But you're totally right that in this episode especially, but in most of the episodes like this. Mulder and Scully are not really the primary characters or they're not the primary driving force in the plot. But I do think it is kind of a perfectly written 45-minute self-contained episode of television. So to me, a kind of Monster of the Week episode of X-Files on the level of this is some of the best of the show because it takes that fun B-horror movie energy but pairs it with really funny characters and fantastic performances. And I think, like, Peter Boyle obviously is both the star of this episode and 
completely takes the episode away from every other character in it. <laughs> Peter Boyle won a primetime Emmy for this episode, like uh, I think very deservedly so. But I also think that it doesn't necessarily like represent the whole spirit of the X-Files. But again, at the same time, like I'm not necessarily like a doctrinaire X-File. But it's interesting because I really do agree with you that Mulder and Scully are not the lead characters of it at all. Um, yeah, this is the episode that brought Silence of the Lambs into mind before I'd even read anything about that being an influence. Um, it definitely had that feel to it. Um, I think there are really great scenes here. And I think in a lot of ways, like the setup is really great. Um, I think the scene where he is telling Scully that they're going to end up in bed together is like wonderful. And I love her reaction, the way she plays it because she's both like kind of disgusted and amused and, but she just kind of laughs it off. Like she's not mm-hmm. indignant that this guy is like hitting on her. She's a classy lady. <laughs> yeah. And I like that that kind of brings up all these questions in the episode of like, is he psychic? Is he telling the truth? Cause that doesn't happen. And there's other things that he says that don't, mm-hmm. don't seem to be true. Like it's not so cut and dry that he's just psychic and that's it. Like when he later kind of tells the other cop kind of babysitting him while Mulder and Scully go off and he tells him that like, he knows how he's going to die, which is about to be in like five minutes, but doesn't like do anything to stop that. So it's like, does he really know? Does he know? And he's just like letting it happen. Like there's all these questions that come up and that's, I guess why I just was a little unsatisfied that this then wraps up so quickly. Cause there's just like so much more, like this character could easily be the star of two episodes or whatever. It just felt like some of like the stuff with the guy who ends up being the killer is just kind of, joke and it doesn't feel very real and it, I just didn't really get what like what that character was doing like that character didn't work for me and the way that this wrapped up didn't work for me as much as I thought the setup was fantastic yeah I still love this episode but I totally uh, I totally agree with you that like Peter Boyle is the character like the serial killer doesn't really have much of a character to him at all and I think it just so outshines that I did love the end as well when Scully is watching like the psychic on TV. <laughs> she picks up the phone and you think that she's going to call and then she just throws, oh, throws yeah. the phone at the screen. Oh, the stupendous yappy. It's one of my favorite, favorite sub-characters of X-Files. I will say that this show does a lot of really good, like those final moments, like right before the cut to credits. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that it always like does a satisfying like entire fourth act, but like usually that <laughs> like last moment is really good. So home was pretty gross. <laughs> really gross. Yeah. <laughs> really gross. It's re- I mean, there are a lot of really gruesome moments across the entirety of X-Files, but I do think Home's reputation for for grisliness is appropriate and earned. Yeah, like I mean, I'm not really that much of a prude, I don't think. And so like when I hear like an episode was censored from television, I'm like, "Oh, that's dumb." Like, I mean, that <laughs> happened to Buffy, you know, a couple of times because of things in the headlines. So it's like, oh, just like release it. Like people can take it. But this one, I was kind of like, maybe don't, (laughs) don't play it again. (laughs) Like I kind of agreed with the censors, which made me feel weird, but. You're old now, Chris, you're old. (laughs) I'm shaking my fist. So the episode is scary and it's, it's violent, but it's also, I mean, and it's also, I think there's like a weird undercurrent of like, you know, incest in it. So I think that's probably a large part of the reason why it's censored as well, but it also just feels like very exploitative. Like I'm not sure it's in good taste to even tell this story, you know? So yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it made me feel gross, you know, and I don't know if that's good. 
Is it because like the villains are inbred? So clearly they have like, but they're they're inbred, but like for years and years and years. So they have like mental issues. <laughs> to put it lightly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it's it's not endorsing their methods or whatever. Oh no, it's not a pro. It's not a pro inbred episode. It's not appropriating inbred American heritage, Chris. <laughs> no, I did not say that about this episode. I think it was fascinating, you know, in terms of being able to look in retrospect now and look at the influence of a show like X Files. I do think that taking on more taboo and more overtly icky subjects really was a thing that was opened up by X-Files in the world of TV drama. Now, obviously, Home was a Monster of the Week episode that wasn't connected to the mythology. Home was watched initially by 18.5 million viewers. And they were never the same again. And as literally dark as the whole series is, Home is by far one of the ethically, morally, and dramatically darkest episodes in terms of theme for the whole show. All of the themes in this episode really satirize the American dream. It talks about motherhood and the form of this family, the Peacocks, who've been reproducing their family lineage for hundreds of years in this dying American rural town with a family tree that goes in a straight line. And their murderous ways of hunting the local townspeople are what attract the attention of the FBI. I still think this episode is very effective, and it has some of the best images in the whole series. Especially just the image of the mother of the Peacock family, who lives in a rolling cart underneath her own bed. (laughs) And the image of her sons rolling her out and in from under this bed is just really so innately terrifying and unsettling. It's just an image that's really stayed with me since the end of the show. And and honestly, I don't rewatch the episode too much just because that image itself sticks with me so fully. You know? Yuck. <laughs> it does. Like art- artistically, I think this episode is very well done, like very well made. Like they, they did what they were going for. It's more of a question of like, should they have done this <laughs> on a network show? You know, which is, you know, up up for debate, but like, it, I mean, it, the, especially the scene, I think, where they like get in the car, there's like an oldie playing, they go and basically murder the chief oh, of police. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. I think that's one of the most notable scenes um, in this episode. They use this beautiful Johnny Mathis cover of a song called Wonderful, Wonderful as a musical theme in the episode when the Peacock family drives the family car and goes hunting for victims. It's real disturbing. I mean, it it 
it does that very well. And it just, it left me feeling unsettled, which I guess is probably what they were going for. It was just like sort of just the way the violence is kind of presented. Like, I mean, it's not the goriest thing you'll ever see because it was on network television, but just even just like the attitude of the violence, like when the other sheriff is being killed, there's just something about the tone of this episode that is less flippant, I guess, than a lot of other episodes of the show. Like it just, it it makes you kind of, yeah, feel like as unsettled as, you know, a horror movie would. And that's not necessarily a feeling that you expect to get from a TV show. Seth, yeah. are there other episodes similar to the tone of this one, of Home? Not really in terms of how visceral the violence is. A lot of the action in, like, for instance, the 11th season, like the last season that they did, they really, like, deliberately amped up how visceral the, like, fight sequences and stuff were to where, like, Mulder would be, like, bloody and very slowed down by the fact that he had to kick someone's ass in a way that he wasn't early in the series. But there wasn't really anything that was, like, violent and not literally horrifying in the way that Home was. Like, it it really is a, it's a real kind of monster of the week in a very different way than I think a lot of the Monster of the Week episodes are. Yeah, I mean, this is the episode that kind of crystallized for me the idea that a lot of what they're investigating is old movies. Because <laughs> this is very Texas Chainsaw, I think mm-hmm. is the most obvious like oh, direct yeah. reference. But also very psycho, you know, with a scary kind of old building and a for mother sure. who seems very controlling and like sons who are very like creepily, you know, into their mom. And Babe. Uh, there's some babe in here too there's some babe in there i I really enjoyed scully's babe joke it was great right (laughs) it's a good one there's some secret farmer trick to getting these things moving no man you no ram you yeah that'll work i read this out my nephew this weekend i watch his babe 15 times a day People call me Yeah, I mean, as an artistic expression, I think this is probably the best done episode, but it was also like, I don't know if I would want to watch it again. I probably made the mistake of watching this right after Postmodern Prometheus. <laughs> so in my notes, I wrote, I've had my fill of deformed freaks tonight. <laughs> Which yeah, is, seriously. Uh, it was a lot to take all at once. I watched Memento Mori, which was the one where she discovers her cancer. Yeah, because that was one of the biggest plot lines throughout X-Files where the conspiracy, such as it is, was personalized in the characters' bodies. And Scully oftentimes was the victim of this, but not just her, Mulder was too. But in Scully's case, she was abducted by the government, her ova were taken from her, so she wasn't able to have children. Wait, that happens in this episode? No, that happens in this series, like earlier in this season and in the third season and second season, like literally across the whole course of the overall series. Why don't they want her to have kids? It's not that they don't want her to have kids. It's that they have motives in taking her eggs from her. Oh. In researching for the show, I learned that the reason why they had this particular storyline is that Jillian Anderson was pregnant. So they had to find a way of writing around Scully's character and of having her go away for a couple episodes. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. See, I would have loved if Scully just had a relationship and got pregnant. (laughs) Like, and was still like a kick-ass FBI agent while pregnant. 
that's one story way to do it. I think, again, it's like understanding how much they were just winging it and how much they didn't anticipate the success of the show. So they didn't know necessarily the storytelling lengths they would have to go to substantiate the filming schedules and all of that. I can totally understand not necessarily agreeing with the kind of plot decision to subject Scully to victimization and pain and horrifying things. I feel these words as if their meaning were weight being lifted from me, knowing that you will read them and share my burden as I have come to trust no other, that you should know my heart, look into it, finding there the memory and experience that belong to you, that are you, is a comfort to me now, as I feel the tethers loose and the prospects darken for the continuance of a journey that began not so long ago, and which began again with a faith shaken and strengthened by your convictions, if not for which I might never have been so strong now, as I cross to face you and look at you incomplete hoping that you will forgive me for not making the rest of the journey with you. Yeah, I mean, I obviously didn't watch the whole show, at least not this time around, but that whole storyline just doesn't interest me. Like, it feels a little bit like male writers not knowing what to do with just a woman being pregnant, for one thing. And it's not that interesting to me. Like, I feel like the more I learn about the mythology in the show, the less I actually care about it, because I'm just like, oh, that's... That's it. I'm like, okay. Like, it's not that interesting. And I'm sure that there are episodes that, you know, deal more with these characters and how they feel about these things. But like, even this episode where Scully is learning pretty much that she's almost certainly going to die, like, it didn't get me emotionally in the way that I feel like that kind of story should. And it's because I think we see so little of these characters outside of work. And I know it's supposed to be that work is their lives, but you know, like people do other things. Like they're not literally at their desks every day. And so it would have been nice to see like Scully on a date or Mulder at a barbecue or just, you know, kind of carrying some of this with them into the real world and like, when they deal with these kind of more emotional episodes, I just feel a bit of a disconnect because they don't really feel like real people. Like they're, they've never been grounded in a real world to me. I agree. That's totally understandable because a lot of these moments happen in other episodes that that's not really the focus of. There's another episode earlier on where Scully meets this group of UFO abduction survivors and kind of like learns that she and they like already knew each other, that they had all been abducted together. But I want her to go to a book club. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I don't know if you've seen a UFO abduction survivor club, but it's literally exactly like a book club. Well, yeah, I mean, that was part of that storyline was in here, but it's just like, but like, when did she go home and bake some bread and think about the fact that she was going to die? I don't know, like, (laughs) just something normal where it's not about meeting other abductees, but meeting, you know, like, they don't have any friends at all. 
I know they have family members who like occasionally come in to the storyline, like Scully's sister is shot, you know, and killed in some of the episodes that I saw earlier, but yeah. And her mother too is a big part of it. It's always like in service of the plot. It's never just sort of like, you know, like how does she feel as a person, you know, and is she dating someone, you know, that this complicates, like, I don't know, that just would have, even if it wasn't a huge part of the show and maybe it was only in every so often, you know, like one or two episodes a season, like, you know, it, I, I would have liked some some sense that they have a life outside of this, which it doesn't really seem like they do. Yeah. Yeah, this is exactly my my problem of why I can't get into it. If I just saw Mad Men at work creating copy, <laughs> like, I wouldn't care. <laughs> it's because of their, you know, outside relationships and, and who they are as people. And I just need more of that in this to feel compelled to watch these people fight werewolves and aliens and stuff. <laughs> You know, like, honestly, I'm hard-pressed to disagree with either of you here. Gillian Anderson, very deservedly, I think, won the Lead Actress Emmy Award during this particular season of X-Files for her work. But I do agree with you that a lot of that performance is really in service of the plot that's happening to Scully, not what she's deciding to do as a person. And again, the kind of directives of the conspiracy theory and unwinding that story out are absolutely totally in the driver's seat here. Hmm. So, you know, as much as I love rewatching these seasons... I think there would have been another formulation of the show that could have felt a lot less procedural and could have been a lot more personal. And I think that would have put a lot more drama into this dramatic series. Did either of y'all watch Bad Blood? Yes. Yeah, I thought it was cute. It was written <laughs> by Vince Gilligan, originally aired February 22nd, 1998. This might be my favorite episode of the show ever. It's it's doing the cute Rashomon thing. I liked the different perspectives because uh, I've made me feel more about their relationship and how they see each other and how they see the world. Yes. So I think that's why I, I got a lot more out of this episode. Okay, good. Because that's, that's part of why I included it and part of why it's one of my favorite episodes is because it uses the kind of both the Monster of the Week format and also the kind of unique storytelling structure format of the episode to kind of reveal more about Mulder and Scully, about how they see the world and how they see each other. Apparently your mind was somewhere else. Who, boy? Y'all must be the government people. I'm Lucius Harwell. He had big buck teeth? He had a slide over by he didn't and that's significant how i'm just trying to be thorough so anyway then we want to take a look at the body here we go no exam has been done no sir this is just like we found him in a motel room as is no exam has been done uh no ma'am once i heard y'all was interested i figured we'd best leave it to the experts I wasn't that into this episode. Um, it was okay. Like, you know, I get that it's amusing. It, it, it is. 
Like, there's a lot of jokes. The number one thing you say when you've laughed your ass off at something is to say, I would agree that it is amusing. <laughs> like, I think maybe it was a bit of fatigue of these kinds of episodes from the show, but this felt like the writers writing for themselves, like amusing themselves or maybe amusing like the hardest core X-Files fans by kind of playing with the mythology. But like, it just felt too, like, I wrote down, like, is this a sketch comedy series? Like, <laughs> like at a certain point, it just felt like they just kept doing like joke episodes instead of telling a story. And I know there's obviously a lot of different kinds of episodes, but it was too jokey and felt like a little too maybe outside the point of view of the show where it just felt like the writers were bored and like sitting in the writer's room like ah wouldn't it be funny if we did it like this you know fair enough (laughs) well what i really noticed about this episode also is that it's about vampires and i couldn't help but notice that this uh episode premiered in 1998, which was about a year into Buffy's run. So it also kind of felt like X-Files was doing Buffy in this episode. Like they were just going full Buffy. And did it not feel for the first, you know, three years or so of Buffy that they were doing (laughs) X-Files? Well, there there were characters, you know, experiencing things. So, you know. Oh, well, okay. Okay. Boys, boys. Um, Also, Becky, I heard that you had watched another episode that was not on my list that I sent out uh, from the seventh season entitled X-Cops. That's another one of my personal favorites. Yeah, this is one that I clearly remember from high school, and I don't know if I watched it, but all of my friends were huge (laughs) X-Files fans. Did I forget to mention that, that all my friends were huge X-Files fans? Maybe that had something to do with me pretending to like the show. That makes it worse. You've submitted to peer pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think I did. No, she didn't. She didn't watch the show. <laughs> I just pretended fair. to watch the show. My favorite shirt was a Truth Is Out There shirt. Did I mention that? <laughs> um, You're the biggest poser of I all time. I am. Say. I'm not disagreeing with you. <laughs> or the T-shirt of the band at the concert. <laughs> Senior year of high school for Halloween, I dressed as myself in ninth grade when I was goth, but I all, but I wore oh my, my X Files T. Shirt because that's what I wore like every other day was my X Files t shirt. <laughs> anyway, all my friends were into the X Files. It was like such a big deal back then, and they thought it was like the funniest thing ever and the most inventive thing they'd ever seen. And I was like actually really excited to watch that today, and I thought it was fine. <laughs> it was just fine. Like, I was like, oh, it's cops. <laughs> It didn't really like this. The show isn't humorless, but there's just like it's like amusing as opposed to funny. Like the funny moments aren't like drop dead funny. They're just like, uh huh. (laughs) So I don't know. Like even a comedy, it's not that funny. I couldn't watch this episode because cops, I guess, like. Because you're a bad boy. Yeah. And what was I going to do? What was I going to do? Watch this episode? No. No, there's there's just been a lot of discussion of the show cops with like recent headlines, and I just like couldn't find the will to you know put on a like goofy cops mm-hmm. parody. You didn't you didn't miss much, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, that will take us right into the first feature film created from the X-Files franchise, subtitled Fight the Future. The X-Files movie was produced concurrently with the show and designed as basically a two-hour alien mythology episode of the series. Story-wise, the film takes place between seasons five and six, but in terms of development and production, the movie was filmed in the hiatus between the show's fourth and fifth seasons and did reshoots during the fifth season. Oh, that's weird. The story follows agents Mulder and Scully removed from their usual jobs on the X-Files and investigating the bombing of a building and the destruction of criminal evidence, and they uncover more of the government conspiracy attempting to hide the truth about an alien colonization of Earth. It was released on June 19, 1998, made for a budget of $66 million and making $189.2 million worldwide at the box office. Review-wise, it's got a 60% on Metacritic and a 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was mostly recognized very positively by the fan community and is still regarded as the only good X-Files movie so far. Out of two? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But again, it was pretty much intended as a two-hour X-Files episode, so it was pretty much critically received as one and met mostly with mixed reviews. Roger Ebert wrote, As pure movie, The X-Files more or less works. As a story, it needs a prequel, a sequel, and cliff notes. (laughs) And then, I'm very happy to tell you both that as When We Were Young begins our super summer in isolation, we're back, back once more on the Rita Beat. (laughs) Rita Kempley writes, You'll be as bum-fuzzled when you go as when you came. Rita. Carter's narrative is as obtuse as a tax form, and his characters' true natures remain as impenetrable as the Pope Mobile's bulletproof windows. What? <laughs> While the film reveals some new information, these revelations only lead to vastly more perplexing permutations. What's going on? <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Rita, much like the X-Files itself, was totally losing the plot by then and could only rescue itself uh, with monologues. <laughs> Seth, I'm curious, what was your reaction to this movie? Like, did it feel like two episodes of the show or did it feel like its own thing? It's hard for me to say um, because watching this in the theaters as a movie was one of the first X-Files experiences I ever had. So I don't know if I can divorce myself from the excitement of watching it that day. The excitement? <laughs> the the excitement, exactly. I think it's successful, you know, in ramping up the cinematic nature uh, that was already part of the show. But also in retrospect, I wonder what about that particular storyline really justified it being the storyline for their first feature film. It was very consciously developed as a movie that could be a bridge either between two seasons or a bridge into just making the X-Files a movie-only franchise and ending the show right there. And while it was successful, it wasn't enough of a blockbuster that Chris Carter was ready to just end the show. And so I really appreciate the scale and the scope of this as a movie. You know, this is a movie that opens in Texas in 35,000 BC with cavemen killing aliens in an ice cave. (laughs) Uh, And it ends with Mulder and Scully freezing together in the Antarctic on an ice Mm floe watching a UFO fly away. Well, Scully doesn't see it. Just just Mulder is watching. Yeah, we'll talk about that. (laughs) 
I have something to say about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the scale of it is very feature film sized, and I enjoy watching it for that. But I don't see the storyline as being a really great feature film story, and I don't really see this as all that much more than another really good episode of the show. I saw this movie repeatedly as a child, teenager, child. Um, I was bored. <laughs> I was bored watching it. I remembered nothing except bees. And I was and then halfway through I was bees. like, How are bees how are bees gonna be in this? And then there, I there remembered they are. bees too. <laughs> yeah, I remembered bees. I do have to say though, what I've realized watching this movie and some of these episodes are my favorite porn is Mulder and Scully almost kissing. <laughs> It, nothing nothing gets me hotter than them almost kissing. You want to tell yourself that so you can quit with a clear conscience? You can, but you're wrong. Why did they assign me to you in the first place, Mulder? To debunk your work, to rein you in, to shut you down. But you saved me. As difficult and as frustrating as it's been sometimes, your goddamn strict rationalism and science has saved me a thousand times over. You kept me honest. You made me a whole person. I owe you everything. Scully, you owe me nothing. I don't know if I want to do this alone. I don't even know if I can. And if I quit now, they win. So one of the major threads of fandom that surrounded the show was so-called MSR, Mulder Scully relationship. <laughs> this is where Ew, it has an acronym. Oh yes. Not only that, but like you'll hear in the fandom community for all kinds of series and shows and all that, you'll hear the term shippers. Yeah, uh, yeah, which are I know that. shipping now who worship like the relationships of characters on the series. And that originated with X-Files fans that shipping, the idea of shipping that started with the X-Files online fan community. Like X-Files was really the first show to have a massive rabid online fan community. <laughs> and the, the, as kind of, I think we all take for granted that Mulder and Scully have a romantic relationship, but for the first, like, six years of the show and even up through the movie um there was never really a substantiation or an acknowledgement that they had any kind of romantic entanglement whatsoever wait they, when when do they have an actual relationship so this happen? this is about an episode that we probably won't really talk about but jillian anderson wrote and directed an episode in the seventh season called all things and it wasn't actually until that episode uh, that it was ever confirmed that Mulder and Scully had any kind of romantic entanglement whatsoever. Um, at literally every point in the series before that, uh, any attempt they had to mack on each other was interrupted or undermined or be stung away. Well, I want to see a supercut of all of their moments almost getting together. I I completely disagree. I am so disinterested in them as a couple. I... I'm surprised that fans would want this because it to me it like kind of, it ruins their dynamics together, which they're such good partners and foils for each other and friends that like ugh, it's like 
You, you know why, Chris? It, it kind of grosses me out. Chris, like, you know who agrees with you is the creators of the show yeah. because they very deliberately and studiously avoided trying to let there be any kind of actual romantic relationship between Mulder and Scully. But it was literally like, this is the double-edged sword of having a discipleship, an evangelical fan community out in the world who feel such a deep attachment to these characters and such a parasocial relationship with them is they felt at some point that they could not avoid having Mulder and Scully connect with each other in that way in service to the fans. They literally like for that exact reason because so much of Mulder and Scully's character dynamic is in the specific and intense chemistry that they have but that their relationship is this kind of relationship where they push each other as collaborators and as co-workers and colleagues and peers like that not partnered together in a kind of romantic lovey-dovey way but i totally get why people want it though like they're both hot oh sure we all know Becky. i'm just gonna keep saying it they're both gorgeous and they have no one else on the show to have that romantic uh relationship with there's there's no there's no one else <laughs> but that's <laughs> like, why i would argue that they should have had you know a, little bit more personal story because like if you know Mulder had been married at some point you know like obviously that would be a much different kind of dynamic and it's the fact that there's such a dearth of any personal lives that I guess people are like kind of filling this in but like I also think that like fans are stupid they don't know what they want and their relationship pretty much coincides with what it sounds like the show started losing popularity and I think that's not a coincidence is that like even though fans sometimes think that that's what they want it's not actually the best thing for the story. Absolutely. And and you're exactly right that when the original run of the show started, its kind of ratings decline and critical decline was when the shape of the plot lines and the stories really started to reflect more of what the fan community wanted. You know, like this, this really could be its own episode, but there have been literally 25 years of conventions and fan gatherings for X-Files fans, not just the one that Becky attended as a youth. <laughs> the the X-Files really was one of the first TV hits ever with an online fan base. And back in the day, that was, you know, message boards, Usenet groups, online chat forums. Fans were known as X-Files with a PH. Again, there were a lot of really popular websites that are still around to this day where my posts are randomly archived somewhere, <laughs> I'm sure. It was something at the time that gave me such a sense of community and connectedness with like-minded people who liked the same things I liked. But also in retrospect, the downside of that was seeing the ways in which the show was, I think, kind of negatively affected by trying to hew too close to fan service and too close to just doing exactly what fans demanded. Because Chris, I, I think you're right. Like Fans know what fans want. They don't necessarily know what characters need or what would uh, broaden and deepen a character within a particular story arc. And I do think overall that the amount of success that X-Files had and the developed community in its wake, I do think that those things ended up feeding it, but also diminishing it in certain ways and kind of keeping it narrow. So, I mean, my overall reaction to this movie when I first started watching it is I was compelled by it because it did some stuff that I felt like the show didn't do, which I think was necessary for any fans 
or I guess non-fans who are walking into this movie, you know, because it was a movie to see and, and hadn't seen the show by like reestablishing these characters a little bit. And it was having a little bit of fun with their banter. I think Scully in particular is really fun in the early scenes of this movie, kind of like toying with Mulder, pretending that like the door is locked and they had banter that felt real to me. And I guess also the fact that they were like reassigned to a real FBI unit, not like a supernatural one. But like it was a fun like way into this movie where they felt just kind of like like lethal weapon or something with Mulder mm-hmm. and Scully instead of instead of the show. So it it was a nice like reestablishing of the characters. I thought it was a really fun movie. It had a lot of good like seventy style paranoia. Like it, it worked. And then she gets stung by a bee, which I want to like flag this a little bit because they they go to a place where there are a lot of bees. A bee supposedly like lands on her, like follows her. The bee's a real stalker. <laughs> it's it's very Jaws the Revenge. Like the bee, I guess, stays on <laughs> no, her. I, I think, yeah, it gets stuck in her clothes. As she travels, but she like travels back to Washington, D.C., right? And it seems like everyone is waiting. Like, they've planned this particular bee to sting her at a particular moment. Like, it it puts her into shock and they, like, cart her away. But it's like, how did they know that there was a bee? (laughs) Hey, hey, be fair, Chris. That bee reserved a spot in her collar on Airbnb. Oh, oh, that was so many bad puns. I can't even, like, start with that. Honey. (laughs) Honey, no. Beehive. Goodbye. Could be. <laughs> no. So, I mean, I guess, like, whatever, they, they somehow, like, programmed this one B to, like, wait for the right moment. Um, but as soon as that happened, like, Scully becomes this damsel in distress, and the movie is all about, like, Mulder going to rescue her. And it became, like, it gets really boring, I think. Like, the whole, like, last act of this movie is just... I, I see what you mean, and I kind of agree. I think as soon as the bee stings her, the movie just kind of becomes plot, plot, plot. Once again, uh, CGI Antarctica, plot, plot, UFO. Yeah, very Matrix before the Matrix, I guess. Yeah, but, yeah. Like this highlights a problem that I also had with the show, which is just like Scully is conveniently like passed out for when like the spaceship like flies overhead. But like there are like forty five episodes where <laughs> Scully has like hurt her leg or is like somehow like trapped in some other location, and then Mulder's like, "Oh my gosh, a spaceship!" or or something, and it's just. As, you know, just the formula of that gets a little bit ridiculous. We have we have long talked on the When We Were Young podcast about the uh, conscious plot choice of the incapacitation of women <laughs> as as yeah. a as a storytelling vehicle to give men special insight and information and power in in their plot situations. Um, and yeah, that actually kind of leapt out at me this time, especially rewatching like a lot more episodes than just the list that I put together for y'all. Um, yeah, I actually have to agree. I have a question. Yeah, I mean, uh, oh, go ahead. She like knows that like this shit is real, right? Because like, it does, doesn't she see in these episodes? <laughs> oh, she, that she, Becky, this shit is real. So again, part of why it's insufficient to just like watch eight or nine episodes of a show and think that you've seen the whole thing is that like you don't see the whole trajectory of Scully's character. Where over the course of the series, she becomes a believer. Uh, Mulder becomes disillusioned. And actually, there's a point at which he is led to believe that the U.S. government actually made up all of the alien colonizing stories and all of that conspiracy and everything 
just as a guise for, you know, kind of military domination around the world. Um, they, they, their polarity, Mulder and Scully's polarity as characters who have faith in the existence of the su- supernatural or the extraterrestrial kind of change in valence a lot over the course of the season and the series and kind of flip in a lot of different ways. But they see some shit. They both do. <laughs> like, I'm just thinking of like the bad blood episode where they both have like vampire experience. Is it bad blood? Am I thinking of? Yeah, with the the green eyes, the glowing green eyes. I have the same problem, too, is that, like, by, like, mid-season one, they have seen enough to be like, yep, all true. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) this is a game that, like, I feel like there's, like, kind of a disconnect between the writing and the production of the show, which is, like, the production shows the audience so much. Like, we know, basically, right away in the show that, this supernatural stuff is all real. Like every episode pretty much has something supernatural that happens that like, there's no other explanation. Like in the bad blood episode, like the glowing green eyes, the fangs, like, like it does try and like kind of call that into question, but like from an audience perspective, like there's no question that that was some kind of real supernatural thing happening. And yet the show constantly like has Mulder and Scully, even Mulder, like who's a believer kind of be like, "Mm, sure like and it's just like we're constantly ahead of them in every episode and then in the series as a whole and especially with the alien conspiracy as well like there's stuff in season one and two where i'm like oh obviously aliens are happening like you see like little aliens running around and yet like the show continues to act like oh we don't know like maybe and so i just feel like the special, like the show goes for like the special effects and like the supernatural aspect and, and shows us all that. And yet the characters are kind of always, even though like we've seen them see this stuff and then they're kind of like, "Uh, yeah, we're not sure. It it just feels like kind of crazy at a certain point. Like the version of both of your points that I completely agree with (laughs) um, is that you very quickly outpace the level of the writers and the show creator in understanding who these characters are. And it's like, you so quickly get that any person who is as reasonable as Scully is, and who is as capable of internalizing and processing information as Scully is, would believe in these things that she is directly experiencing Mm -hmm. relatively soon, if not necessarily immediately. And I think there was a certain point at which even the show creators and like the head writers and like Vince Gilligan and even people like that understood that the audience was kind of ahead of them. But I don't know if the shows that followed in X-Files wake are even as good writing wise as X-Files is like, I feel like part of this again is kind of faded by virtue of the fact that these were like 24 episode seasons. And also some of that kind of mismatch was locked into place by the fact that the show was so procedural and focused so much on just what their day-to-day work assignment was and less based specifically on what they were individually going through as people. And again, of course, part of that would be more informed if you watched more episodes. But I also like really have 
would have to agree. They chose to style and structure this show in a certain way, and there were results of those choices, you know, that kind of limited dramatically what they could put these characters through in a way that was believable and really compelling. Yeah, I feel like they just wanted, like, at a certain point, they got kind of tired of, like, the procedural aspect and just wanted to do the Twilight Zone and, like, come up with, like, different, like, quirky worlds and characters and got more interested in those side characters, you know, and some of that is interesting. But I don't know, for for characters who are as iconic as Mulder and Scully, like, I think you could ask most people on the street, even if they haven't seen the show, and they know, like, who those characters are and maybe, like, kind of the basics of, like, Mulder is the believer and Scully is the skeptic. But like for all that, like the show seems slightly disinterested in those characters, or at least like is sometimes working against them and basically just wants to do like crazy, like artistic episodes. I mean, I know that we watch some of the ones that are more, you know, out there, uh, no pun intended, uh, (laughs) you know, in terms of style, you know, but those seem to be the fan favorite episodes. So it, it, it just seems a little strange that this show seems so kind of to work against the characters in a way and that the fans even kind of seem to want something different than just the story of those characters. Well, in terms of what I would hear from the fan community back when I followed that kind of thing in message boards on AOL with my 56 K modem, um, a lot of the fan frustration went along similar lines where there'd be these long storylines teased across, you know, three episode arcs or across whole seasons, but they didn't incorporate these really basic things that were happening in Mulder or Scully's emo- emotional internal lives that would make the plot thing that the creators obviously wanted to do seem really dramatically grounded in their characters rather than just a plot thing that had to happen to move to the next point. And one thing I learned in researching the episodes that really helped me understand why this happened was that they consciously would film and program and write the mythology episodes to line up with Sweeps Week in the broadcast TV schedule. So they'd end up putting a lot more time and money into these episodes and shooting them on a higher grade film stock for a better look, but it was all done out of order. And it's interesting the ways in which the fandom, even at the time, saw the ways that Mulder and Scully were kind of shortchanged in terms of character development just as a result of this. So it's ironic in the long run, but it makes total sense. Given the way in which the show and the writer's room were run, it limited their ability to really follow and tease out Mulder and Scully's inner lives in a more linear and organic and holistic way. So it also kind of makes some sense to me why the fans then kind of gravitated toward more of the one-off episodes and more off-the-beaten-path things. Seth, I'd like to know, I'm pretty sure that I got from this episode that you like this show (laughs) still. Yes. Was there anything watching these episodes again that disappointed you or you didn't think held up or just something different than what you than you experienced watching these episodes growing up? Well, there's a ton that doesn't hold up, you know, like in terms of computer effects, in terms of episodes that are very clearly filler. The opening credits. <laughs> yeah, the opening credits. Absolutely. 
<laughs> but there's a lot about the show that I still just genuinely enjoy. And primarily that's the interplay and the rapport between Mulder and Scully as characters and the chemistry between David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson as actors. Their characters are really good foils for each other and those actors just have so much fucking chemistry that it's undeniable. I do think that if X-Files had been made now, you know, in the era of prestige TV that it helped set off, I do think it would be a very differently structured and made show. I do think it would have many fewer episodes per season, and it would dedicate more toward fleshing out the lives of Mulder and Scully as characters. I don't necessarily know if it needs to be remade in that way, though. But I feel like I understood and agreed with a lot of both of your criticisms of the show throughout this episode. Again, though, it's just that this show is kind of a comfort food for me now that just kind of innately entertains me, even if my sharper critical mind knows that many aspects of it don't necessarily hold up. I have an evil question. <laughs> Ooh, I love evil <laughs> questions. It is a question for Becky. Oh, <laughs> who, me? Oh. The question is, if, if I were to say you're going to get to watch a random episode of The X-Files or a random episode of Buffy, <laughs> which would you choose? Chris. Oh, this is unfair. I was going to bring this up. While I was watching these episodes, I was thinking, I think I had a better time watching Buffy. Oh, my heart. And now I... Just, my hands are I, up in the air <laughs> in a victorious pose. <laughs> Yeah, I... I'm just glad you can't see me crying right now. I had more fun watching Buffy. Buffy has Once More with a Feeling, which is the musical episode, which I love. Sorry, there's no X-Files musical. So I guess (laughs) the end of this episode is that Chris wins? (laughs) (laughs) Worst episode. Worst. (laughs) I am sorry, but I could not help, like, consistently... Think about Buffy with this because I was like, Buffy also has these episodes that are very like one off, you know, artful, like experimenting with the form. But I just to me like this show is groundbreaking. It was it did air before Buffy. So I think in a lot of ways it paved the way for that. But going back and watching it now, I feel like there are so many shortcomings that like for me, like Buffy, like also like does everything the X-Files does, but also like has character arcs and things that like pull you into the show that have people, you know, continuing to watch it. And I don't know if people are like, you know, in mass, like still watching this show, like the X-Files, but it's still pretty popular. I don't know. I mean, I know that I'm biased, but I just kind of kept thinking like, yeah, but like Buffy did this and better. You were definitely biased, but I have some episodes of Buffy that I really do like a lot. And I've even been like to my husband, like, you should watch this episode. It's just a good episode of TV. And just for me with X-Files, like some of the best episodes of the series for me, I still don't think I'd be like, call up a friend and be like, you have to watch this. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is like we have watched now some of the episodes considered the best and maybe they are the best if you've watched the entire series and they like, you know, pop out to you. But like, I think that Buffy at least like like you can watch some episodes in isolation and still appreciate them. Whereas like with the X-Files, it feels like everything kind of kept coming up to like, but if you had seen like the other 217 episodes before this, you know, like they don't hold up 
up as much on their own, even though in many ways they are kind of very singular. Like Home is an episode where, you know, you don't need to see the rest of the series. It doesn't connect. But somehow that it still felt like that was the prerequisite for watching. Welp. Where do we go? <laughs> are, are, can we go? Can we outro with the Buffy theme? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just like to say that Jillian Anderson and David Duchovny still hold up as far as their beauty in my eyes. They truly do. 50% true in my eyes. I don't know what it is about both of them, but mostly David Duchovny. But there's just, I'm just, I've just got little butterfly eyes. In Chris, him. David Duchovny, why won't you love he? <laughs> I, I really don't get it. He just looks like a sad dad. <laughs> Maybe that's what I'm into. You're not turned on by a sad dad? <laughs> no. Well, that's on you, really. Sad dad, DTF. <laughs> Fair. I, I will I will gladly accept that as my cross to bear. <laughs> Uh, Well, in terms of other impacts of The X-Files, Vince Gilligan, who was the head writer and head of the writer's room for a couple seasons, who ended up creating a couple shows after X-Files, namely Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. In other news, Chris Carter created less successful shows than Vince Gilligan. Whatever. Vince Gilligan (laughs) and Chris Carter have lots of mansions, so they're doing fine. Exactly. They're all doing great. But I thought it was, like, worth mentioning that because Vince Gilligan, in part because Vince Gilligan got a chance to build his writer-director TV drama chops on a show like X-Files, he, you know, he was able to create something on the scale of a Breaking bad and a better call Saul, which are really widely lauded as two of the very best shows on television ever as well. Agree. Yeah, I mean, you can definitely see like the origins of Breaking Bad in the X-Files in terms of like a sort of mythology that builds, but like, yeah, that also that show also has like very, very compelling characters and there's like character stuff going on in every episode. So t- uh, team Breaking Bad. Yeah, so watch Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was going to say, there was also an episode of The X-Files that Vince Gilligan directed that Brian Cranston starred in and that was where they actually met each other and, you know, kind of where Vince Gilligan kind of got in his head that he wanted to work with Brian Cranston a lot. Good choice. So watch Breaking Bad. (laughs) (laughs) Or Buffy. Or not Buffy. You could also watch not Buffy. I'm going to see if Dave Duchovny's on Instagram and I'm going to go follow him there. He is. (laughs) (laughs) Duchovny, why don't you already follow him? (laughs) Because nothing I do makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Truer words were never spoken. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast. On our next episode... It's Merry Mondays, Lucy Tuesdays, Bewitched But Wednesdays, Genie Thursdays, and Dragnet Fridays, Cotter Fridays. They change Fridays a lot. Anyway, we're going to be looking back at Nickelodeon, Nick at Night, Block Party Summers, which had many classic TV sitcoms that we saw for the first time many decades after they had originally aired. We're going to have our Vitamita Vegemin and wiggle our nose and throw our hat in the air and find ourselves in a giant bottle that needs to be rubbed by a NASA (laughs) astronaut. I dream of that every night. (laughs) 
The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your fine podcast product. You can follow us on all the social medias, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can contribute to us on Patreon by searching for the When We Were Young podcast. I've been Scully and Spooky. I'm Knight at AOL.com. Don't email that. It's not, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> and I'm Slamey, please. <laughs> Enough. <laughs>